Hey, Happy New Year, ladies and gentlemen. This is Current Yield Grants Interest Rate Observer of the Air. This is, um, I think, Eva Lorenz. This is our first broadcast of the year 2022. And if so, well, I, I should add that I hope it is because I have no recollection of a prior 2022 broadcast. Are you on the same wavelength, Evan? I am. Yeah, that's good. Okay, that's uh, comforting. But here we are, and it is great to be with uh, the listeners of The Current Yield again. It's great uh, to be with the readers of Grant's Interest Rate Observer again. This is our first uh, coming up, Evan, is our first issue back from our, uh, not inordinately lengthy, but uh, to be sure, uh, ample New Year's and Christmas break. And I don't know about you, but I, I'm like, like, where is the space bar on the keyboard? One gets disoriented. <laughs> I've been pushing for the all picture issue. Yeah. Let me know how that works with the powers that I wait, I'm the power. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. A man who I think knows exactly where the space bar is and many other keys on the keyboard as well as with us this morning. He is Christopher Leonard, who is the uh, uh, the author of a truly a must read new book called um, The Lords of Easy Money. The title sounds as if it were uh, drafted in the offices of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, but I can assure you it was not. It was just the Simon & Schuster production. Christopher is a, a storied investigative journalist whose previous work has included uh, The Meat Racket, uh, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Business, and uh, New York Times bestselling uh, Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America. And uh, I think if the technology is working, um, we will next hear... Christopher Leonard's voice on the air. Christopher, are you there? I am here, and thank you so much ah, for having excellent. me on. I appreciate it. Well, you're entirely welcome. It is we who thank you, because this is, uh, this. speaking of meat, as you were uh, three books ago, this is the uh, prime rib of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, the Lords of Easy Money. This, Evan, is this not us? I mean, this right is right uh, Yeah. So, Christopher, I, I'd like to ask you, uh, to begin with, what preconception? If any, I know every journalist works uh, tableau rasa. We are only interested in facts. But if there were a preconception, you know, the, the pitch you must have made to Simon and Schuster for the book, did you approach this from the point of view of a critic of zero percent rates and of quantitative easing and all the rest of the, uh, the so-called toolkit, which word makes me gag, of the Federal Reserve, or uh, did you come after it? Uh, come after the topic as a I was an um, ally of Tom Honig at the Kansas City Fed and uh, a confirmed critic of easy money. Which was it? Well, if I'm being perfectly honest with you, the embarrassing truth is I came to this topic with a bias reflecting total ignorance. And, and that's embarrassing for me to say because I've been a business reporter since the late 1990s. And, you know, I, I came across this story in about 2016. And at the time... As a business reporter, of course, I knew about the Federal Reserve, and I had heard about quantitative easing. I, I knew it was a, a thing out there. I remember a, a friend of mine was a reporter for Bloomberg and was trying to explain to me how crazy this thing called quantitative easing infinity was back in 2012. And, and I just got to be honest, I didn't get it. And I didn't really think that much about the Fed or how the Fed created currency until 2016. When really quite by accident, I stumbled across the story when I was reporting a different project. And I just happened to interview this guy who's a really brilliant guy. And he's, he's one of these financial market trader types. And, you know, I was interviewing him on something else, but all he really wanted to talk to me about that day was asset prices. And 
he, over a matter of hours, walked through what he was seeing in financial markets. And I left that meeting thinking, this guy's got to be off base. This guy's got to be crazy because he told me things like, he said, you know, in the past few years, the Federal Reserve has printed three times as much money as it printed in the first century of its existence. And it has created this massive search for yield across asset markets. It's inflating asset prices across all these different industries. And when I when I started researching at that point, I realized that, that this guy that this guy was right, that the Fed in 2010 really had steered us down a, a totally different path of, of monetary policy. And, and so that's where this book began for me. And you know, first I wanted to understand it for myself. And then, you know, I realized this is really vitally important to our economy, not just financial markets, but the, the real economy of all of us folks out here trying to earn a living through a paycheck. And I wanted to write a book that explained this to average people, that put it into plain English. But, you know, over the course of my reporting, the book really did transform from a book that was sort of a user's guide to quantitative easing or an explanation of how quantitative easing changed the world to, to the book that it is now, which says how the Fed broke the American economy. Well, uh, bravo. Um, I um, read this book and I so enjoyed it. And um, one of the things that, uh, as, as, the, um, as the Wall Street Journal's reviewer, uh, Joe Sternberg, pointed out today, um, one of the um, uh, the truly engaging features of it is the way you uh, uh, fold in both the viewpoint of kind of the, one of the few uh, inside uh, critics of this regime, namely Tom Honig, the uh, former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. You folded his views in with those of a factory worker named John Feltner. John Feltner comes across as a, a living, breathing, and, and, and quite sympathetic human being who happens to be um, one of the uh, uh, the bit players in a succession of almost comically uh, stereotypical private equity transactions involving uh, the company for which John Feltner works, namely Rexnord Corporation. If yes. you Google, as I dare say, the author of The Lords of Easy Money has Googled uh, Rexnord Carlyle, you will find a press release in 2002 in which one J. Powell <laughs> is quoted um, commending the um, it's kind of this, uh, you know, private equity speak uh, language. Of what a great opportunity this is! So Carlyle buys this company for nine hundred thirteen million dollars, and uh, in two thousand and six, flips it to Apollo for one point eight billion. Well done, Jay. But uh, but uh, Chris, you uh, bring to the fore what this means for John Feltner and the people like him. You bring to the fore what it's like Tom Honig to have thrown his weight and his reputation in the way of this juggernaut of uh, massive intervention and unprecedented money printing. And so uh, first on this podcast agenda is once again to say congratulations on a terrific piece of work. And secondly, to ask what's become of the two protagonists. So what's Tom Honig doing these days and what is John Feltner doing these days and what are they saying about the world that Jay Powell has helped to create? Yeah, what a great question. And and that really sketches out the arc of this entire book. And you know, I'd like to to back up and you just say that, you know, Jay Powell bought Rex Nord for nine hundred million and sold it for one point eight billion. And you know, nine hundred million dollar profit is it's real money, even to to a print journalist like me, you know. Uh it's a good way to even when you say it fast, it's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so it, it's a great question. And and 
it was really important to me that the main characters of this book aren't just the people who run the Fed. Although people like Jay Powell and Tom Honig are critically important, I really, really felt the need to write about the, the kind of intersection where the real world economy, like an old line industrial company like Rex Nord, where that kind of world collides with this world of easy money and hypercharged finance. And I mean, spoiler, the story does not have a great outcome for wage earners or, you know, a factory worker like John Feltner in the book. And, and, and a great reason to understand why this decade of easy money and extraordinary money printing hasn't worked out for, for workers. A good way to understand that is to kind of back up the clock and talk about Tom Honig. You know, I, I mentioned earlier how I became obsessed with quantitative easing back in 2016. And when I did and started researching it, I saw that the vote to initiate the, the really fundamental round of quantitative easing in, in 2010, which was kind of a groundbreaking policy decision in 2010 that was made by Ben Bernanke at the Fed. And the reason that round of quantitative easing was so critical is, is that's the first time the Fed said, we're not doing quantitative easing as a sort of lender of last resort function. We're not doing it to help during a crisis. We're going to do it during the recovery to make the Fed the primary engine of economic growth. We're going to print $600 billion, inject it into Wall Street to boost the American economy overall. The vote to do that was 11 against one. And as a reporter, when you see a vote tally like that, you think, huh, 11 against one, who's, who's the one? What, what's this person's deal? Well, that one who, who tried to stop this was Thomas Honig, the president of the Kansas City Fed. And, and Honig has kind of been remembered by history as a crank, as a, an ultra hawk, as, as, a, as a right wing guy who was constantly warning about price inflation and, and was proven wrong. You know, I know the, t I know the type. I know the type. <laughs> Exceedingly tiresome people. <laughs> Can you relate a little bit? Um, you know, and, and, and Honig, and maybe you can relate to this a little bit, you know, his, his arguments were criticized as being simply unsophisticated and even uncaring. Correct. The, the very vocabulary of calling him a hawk it denoted somebody who, who didn't care about the working class or didn't want the Fed to help. That's the picture I gathered of Tom Honig. But when you go back and read the actual historical record, which is a real luxury for an author to do because, you know, we have time. I'm not on a daily deadline. And the internal transcripts of these Fed debates on the top policy committee, the FOMC, are, the transcripts are made public after a five-year delay. So luckily, history has been recorded. When you go back and look at what Tom Honig was actually arguing when he dissented against quantitative easing in 2010, you see he was not primarily warning about price inflation, as his critics now claim. He was saying that if we do this, we're going to do three things. We're going to enrich the very rich above everybody else, because all we're going to do is stoke asset prices, which is going to benefit the small group of people who own assets. Secondly, we're going to incentivize a binge of risky lending. We're going to push lending out onto the risk spectrum. And third, once we start printing this money, we're never going to be able to stop. We're, we're going to find ourselves in a quagmire. And on every single one of these points, Thomas Honig was right. And the more I interviewed this guy, the more fascinated I became with him. You know, the reason Honig dissented is because 
He had been at the Fed for 30 years. In fact, he was the longest serving member of the FOMC at the time when he initiated this uh, long string of no votes and, and dissents in 2010. He, he had never really dissented before that time, but he ended his career with eight consecutive no votes. And the reason he did that is he had seen firsthand the tremendous damage the Fed can cause when it keeps money too easy for too long. He'd seen it in the 70s during the great inflation. He saw it during the dot-com bust. He saw it during the housing bust. He tried to get them not to do it in 2010, and, and he was roundly ignored. And, and you know, part one of the book talks about Honig's struggle. Uh, it talks about his, in my view, very principled decisions when he dissented. And then part two of the book shows what happened after he lost the fight. And that's that's where John Feltner comes in. You see that, that Honig was right. This policy did not help improve America's infrastructure, educate its workers, or, or put a shovel into anybody's hands. It, it simply incentivized risky financial trading. Um, and, and, you know, at, at this company of Rexnord, what that looked like was a management team that borrowed money at super cheap rates and used it for stock buybacks, um, corporate uh, leveraged loan dealers on Wall Street, who I interviewed for the book, who would buy and sell Rexnord's junk debt and package it into CLOs. It's all a story that I'm sure you're very familiar with. And it really did not play out to the benefit of Mr. John Feltner, who was a longtime machinist working at Rexnord, who, you know, was, in, in my view, a pretty admirable guy. I mean, Feltner was absolutely ready to compete in this kind of new economy where you get laid off one job and have to get the next. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, his company was so loaded down with debt that they had to eventually close the factory where he worked in Indianapolis and shift production to Mexico. And once again, Mr. Feltner found himself out of work, and luckily he, he got a job working maintenance at, at a hospital after that. But, you know, he's had a downward ladder of, of wages his whole career, which is a story you see across the wage earning class in America today. You know, it, it, uh, when you think about it, um, you could make a case that the Fed elected Donald Trump. You know, I, 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 I don't think that that's uh, inappropriate to say at all. And one of the things that I think is very important to remember is the things we're talking about, and, and you're very familiar with all of this, but these are kind of tectonic shifts in our financial system that have been occurring beneath the presidency of Barack Obama and then Donald Trump and now Joe Biden. You know, this, this, is, this is a long-term trend that's been building for years, and, and it's basically the idea that we can somehow promote and produce economic growth by making money hyper cheap, by pinning interest rates at zero, by injecting trillions into the Wall Street system. And I think the record is clear that this program dramatically widens the gap between rich and poor, and, and not just rich and poor, rich and we're everybody else. Well, Chris, one moment. Uh, what you say reminds me a little bit of uh, LinkedIn uh, Talent Solutions. So these days, it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs makes it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. You know, like create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. 
Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. Now, LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the right candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash yield. That's linkedin.com slash yield to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You know, it's, it's, it's clear, but look at what happened when uh, Judy Shelton was, uh, was put up for a position on the Federal Reserve Board as a governor. I mean, the knives came out from within the institution. Um, the New York Sun, um, under the editorship of Seth Lipsky, produced uh, some interesting, indeed, um, by my lights at least, compelling circumstantial evidence uh, that Jay Powell was on the phone to uh, talk with senators about her nomination and not to encourage them to vote for her. But what she represented, at least as I see the situation, was, a, was an alternative to QE, as they say, QE forever, uh, 0% interest rates, uh, massive intervention, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, being the engine of the, use this word, financialization. They simply will not tolerate dissent, as I think Tom Honig would, would uh, be the, perhaps the first to ruefully agree. What, what's he doing now? And is he invited to the Federal Reserve's annual Christmas party? What's, what's his standing within the institution for which he owes his adult life? <laughs> I, I think you can guess the answer to that question. And, and I think everything you said is exactly right. And it's unfortunate. And there, there is so much to unpack in your comments. Um, Tom Honig retired from the Fed after his string of dissents in, in 2010. And interestingly, after that, Honig was nominated to become vice chairman of the FDIC. And he came, he came to D.C. It's a later chapter in the book. He came to D.C. promoting that conservative agenda of breaking up the big banks. And of course, I say that um, somewhat um, sarcastically, but, you know, Tom Honig was trying to return banking to this kind of tradition we saw from basically the late 1930s until the 1990s, which is when you separate wild, you know, investment speculation from commercial banking. Uh, he came to D.C. He tried to pass uh, structural reforms for banks. And once again, he was marginalized. And, you know, today, he is a senior fellow at a think tank uh, called the Mercatus Center um, uh, at George Mason University. And and I hate to say it, but I, I think the fact is he really has been pushed to the margins of, of power. No, of course he's not invited uh, to these events at the uh, Fed. And and no, he didn't get a sinecured position at the Brookings Institution with Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen. And no, uh, you know, Dr. Honig uh, is not a consultant for Citadel, the large hedge fund that where Ben Bernanke is now um, uh, a contractor and, and that, uh, you know, paid Janet Yellen for speeches. I mean, Tom Honig has been pushed to the margins. And if I, if I could please unpack one of the points you made, which is that there's this sort of intolerance for questioning about the new orthodoxy of the Fed. I, I'd like to make two points. The first being that the, the actions since 2010 really have been radical and, and wildly experimental. And you know that, but I mean, Back before 2008, interest rates had kind of brushed up against zero in the late 60s, but they had never stayed at zero for a long time. The Fed kept interest rates pegged at zero for roughly seven years during the 2010s, at the same time that it more than quadrupled the monetary base. I mean, that, that's a remarkable 
experimental program. And the thing that really struck me as you go back and read through the debates is that the Fed itself doesn't really know the effects of what it's doing. The Fed itself is feeling its way through a dark room now that they've rewritten the rules. And, and you know, I won't belabor it with a, a lot of examples, but you can see time and again that it, it's not like Ben Bernanke or Janet Yellen or Jay Powell have this absolute certainty that they even know the, the second order effects or third order effects of what they're doing. But they, they definitely put a premium on not dissenting or, or publicly questioning these kinds of programs. Uh, Christopher, uh, the, the Fed is always groping through a dark room just like all of us, but the confidence in the Fed and its ability to kind of move markets is also a cyclical thing. When um, Volcker became chairman in 79, confidence in the Fed was very low, and as you noted, he had to raise short-term rates to 20%, the highest ever, in order to crush inflation. Uh, Fed confidence probably peaked under Greenspan when it was seen to do no wrong. I remember reading articles in kind of 07 through 09 when the Fed was first starting to do its unconventional policy, and there was a lot of doubt about the Fed. And uh, one thing I'd point out is the Fed announced its first round of QE in November of 2008. The markets didn't bottom until March of 2009. It seems like confidence has peaked in recent years, and I'd note that in 2020, when the Fed announced its kind of kitchen sink of new policies in March 23rd, that was the day that the market bottomed. It bottomed on the exact day that the Fed actually did everything that it said it was going to do. Uh, both the journalist and the historian, how do you kind of view the, the Fed's uh, or confidence in the Fed uh, in the public and kind of, I guess, you know, the financial press and kind of how that impacts the Fed's ability to actually do the right thing, like control inflation when it uh, rears up? Okay, great question. Great question. And, and first, if I could please elaborate a little bit. When I say the Fed is is feeling its way through a dark room, I don't just mean in the normal sense of, you know, they're trying to read the dashboard and figure out if it's time to tighten or loosen and, and that kind of currency management job that they've been doing for decades. I mean, they broke the graph and they don't know how anything works anymore. And, and your listeners probably are, are sophisticated and read enough about this stuff to remember the repo bailout of 2019. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. When the Fed flooded Wall Street with excess reserves, the Fed lost the ability to manage short-term interest rates through open market operations. So they had to use interest on excess reserves and and um, there, the, because there were so many excess reserves. And, and they didn't have to really manage it because they were keeping the rate at zero. And then when they started to do quantitative tightening and tried to hike rates, the repo market short-circuited and we had a panic in, in September 2019 and, the, and then the Fed had to flush $400 billion back into the system to make it just work again. Now, folks who don't follow this stuff might not have followed a lot of that stuff. I try to unpack it more slowly in the book. But what I'm saying is the, the basic mechanics of how monetary policy works are now kind of up in the air in a, in a way they hadn't been for decades. But I'm sorry to digress. That wasn't your question. Your question was confidence in the Fed, how that's changed over the decades, and, and what that means for the Fed's power. And you know, clearly Alan Greenspan changed the game during his tenure and created the sort of aura of infallibility and, and the sort of role of the oracular Fed chair that I think gave first the public and then, of you know, lawmakers in Congress this, this, this kind of willingness to let the Fed go and, and this, this, this idea that, okay, the people who run the Fed are these brilliant PhD technocrats who, who understand this on a kind of this Olympian level that us mere mortals cannot understand it. And, and that has built a confidence in the Fed and, and a leeway and a latitude for the Fed to experiment that I, 
you know, I'm hesitant to say, but I don't think it's warranted. I, I, I really don't think it's warranted. <laughs> no, don't, uh, uh, Christopher, do not hesitate to say that. In fact, may I invite you to say it again? Well, I don't think that the confidence is warranted. And, and, and I mean, I am. He- well done. All right. I, I am hesitant to say that because when I started this book, I really had the mindset of, you know, I wouldn't want to be sitting in the chair of the Federal Reserve. That's a hard job. I mean, hard doesn't even capture it. These people have an incredibly difficult job. But again, it it was going back and reading over the actual transcripts. And, And I'll give you one small example. In September of 2012, quantitative easing wasn't working that well. And Ben Bernanke decided to go even further and triple down on this program and do that round of quantitative easing that we call QE3 or QE infinity. And as they were debating it, I dug up this amazing study that was presented to the senior officials at the FOMC. This study was a forecast of here's what will happen if we do this next round of QE. And this is what they looked at as they considered whether to do it or not. And when you look at that forecast now, it is stunningly incorrect. I call it catastrophically wrong on every measure. They, they, they totally had no clue about what inflation was going to do, what short-term interest rates were going to do, what mortgage rates were going to do, and maybe most importantly, the ease with which they'd be willing to stop this once they start it, which was reflected in the size of their balance sheet that they forecast. And then there's just no getting around the fact that the forecast was catastrophically incorrect. And that's just one small example that I think needs to drive home the point that these folks who lead the Fed are making very important policy decisions. They are not just solving math equations. And sometimes they are operating on a hunch. I mean, in that same debate in 2012, Ben Bernanke said another round of quantitative easing would be, quote, a shot in the proverbial dark which needless to say was different from the kind of rhetoric he was using in public about it at the time. Yeah. Well, um, uh, the Fed uh, doesn't know what it doesn't know. It has the uh, imperiousness of a uh, technocrat without the technology. Uh, you know, there was a, a wonderful book that I have suggested um, to our readers of, readers of grants it's called um, Lost in Math. And uh, she is a physicist, is the author. And um, uh, she was her book was a lamentation on how physics has uh, has meandered uh, from rigor into the beauties of physics for the sake of the beauty of the physics. That is to say, uh, art for the sake of art, and more specifically, mathematical physics for the sake of the quite fetching mathematics. And um, and that. In a way, could sum up the uh, uh, the uh, conceit of the uh, of the physicist Monquet, who people the analytical positions at the Fed. There are 800 or so PhDs in economics, and all of them have come through the uh, highly quantitative programs of today's modern neo-Keynesian program. It's called and. Uh, you know, they all, I think, would be happier at NASA, but they haven't quite got that horsepower. So there they are at the Fed. But they still believe that um, uh, that their mathematics can uh, help them see into the future and improve that future before it can come to pass. And anyway, getting back to the book, the author of Lost in Math says that uh, once uh, uh, she was uh, despairing of making a good living in physics, and she thought, oh, maybe economics. I, I can certainly handle the quantitative part. And she investigated. She said uh, that... Uh, 
the math was was none too appealing or rigorous and altogether um, unimpressive. So there's a physicist look inside uh, the footnotes and the mathematical appendices of the kind of stuff that Bernanke turns out. And Ben Bernanke was wont to tell, um, I dare say he told uh, Tom Honig at one point or another, perhaps over and over, quote, it takes a model to beat a model. That was one of his favorite things. So he would he would answer every mere mortal, not member of the clarity of um, PhD economists that, um, you know, it, uh, they didn't they didn't have what it takes. Anyway, I'm so, I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry. No, please carry on. No, no, you're making me think of one of the most striking uh, debates I, I read inside the FOMC, which, which was fascinating. I'm sure you're very familiar with Richard Fisher, the former president of the Dallas Fed, and an, an internal Fed critic, a, a former investment industry kind of guy, a real thorn in, in Bernanke's side in a lot of ways. And, and there was this amazing exchange before they were about to pass quantitative easing three. When Richard Fisher said during the meeting, he said, look, all we're going to be doing by printing this money is enriching the Carlyle groups of the world, the private equity firms. He said, people like me, okay, who have all this money and who are going to be investing it, we're not going to be helping employees. And Richard Fisher said, I just got off the phone with the chief financial officer of Texas Instruments who told me that the super low interest rates are not encouraging that company to build factories, but only encouraging it to borrow money to do stock buybacks. And that if we keep interest rates lower or do another round of QE, it is not going to incentivize this company to hire a single uh, more another person. It's going to incentivize them to do more stock buybacks. And Ben Bernanke's response to that was, please stop quoting people at this table if those people don't have a PhD in economics. As it, <laughs> that's true. It's in black and white. It's in the book. It's from the transcript. And what Bernanke's point seemed to be was that this chief financial officer isn't smart enough to understand what we're doing through quantitative easing. So please don't listen to that individual. And to me, it, it highlighted something I've kind of noticed in this space, which is that you've got these two spheres of people who care about Fed policy. One would be the PhD economists and theorists who staff up the Fed and, you know, who who promote these theories and talk about it. And then and the other sphere is the actual people in the financial markets, the the hedge fund traders, the speculators, the, you know, the credit people at, at Credit Suisse Bank who are packaging and selling collateralized loan obligations. And as a reporter, you kind of have the luxury of going back and forth between these worlds. And, and I think it's when you talk to people in both worlds that you can really get a much more clear understanding of the effects of what the Fed is doing. I mean, yeah, the Wall Street folks are not sentimental about this stuff at all. They, they just understand what 0% interest and quantitative easing cash does in the investments landscape, which is, you know, massive search for yield. Yeah. yeah. One of my abiding complaints about the Fed and its attitudes toward the world outside its windows is that the Fed is preoccupied with a quantitative present. It has no taste for or knowledge of the financial past. So, you know, this uh, this um, line that if you don't know the past, you're committed to, you know, blah, blah. And now, now 
that 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 is not helpful. But what is helpful is the knowledge that finance is ever cyclical, that it is ever conducted by mortal human beings who, in the presence of large sums of money, lose their wits, much as a teenager does in the person in the presence of the person of romantic interest. Uh, the idea that there is an efficient market that is perfectly calibrated that can be calibrated from uh, the vantage point of a central bank. This is all, uh, uh, you know, it, it's inherently implausible, but it is disproven massively by the record of financial history. And 200 years ago, um, uh, the uh, then prime minister of uh, Britain was uh, responding, I guess, in question time at the House of Commons to uh, uh, some latest eruption in the city of London. And this is after this is a time when the Britain is coming off a paper money experiment uh, that has been conducted during the long Napoleonic Wars and the wars preceding Napoleon on the French Revolution. So it had a 15 or 20 year uh, experiment with uh, paper pound. And here is what uh, Lord Liverpool said, quote, the tendency of an inconvertible paper money is to create fictitious wealth bubbles, which by their bursting produce inconvenience, period, close quote. Gosh. And um, that that quotation summarizes more or less uh, the uh, the nature of financial cycles. Now, notice the phrase inconvertible paper money. That speaks to the orthodoxy of the gold standard, by which uh, the currency is uh, collateralized by a finite stock of a precious metal. Now, the belief in that institution not only disqualifies you from a seat at the table of the Fed, but also brands you much more than might be branded by Tom Honig by as a hopeless um, uh, a crank who who can't be brought to reason. So the Fed, in its own uh, redefinition of the contours of allowable discourse, has uh, marked uh, don't trespass here and anything having to do with what preceded the year uh, 2007 or something. I mean, just, I mean, I, all right, that, that will conclude my little sermonette here. Let's get back to uh, uh, Christopher Leonard in this fabulous book. So we leave. Uh, I have a question. Yeah, uh, Christopher, uh, what what needs to be done to fix the Fed? Um, there, there's a concept in uh, finance yes. called uh, tone at yeah. the top, which is to say that when the CEO of a company says and does things erratically, it's often a sign that there's bad things happening down the course of the organization. The regional Fed presidents often have uh, powwows where they invite local business leaders to talk to them and figure out what's going on in the economy. One of Grant's friends attended one of these um, uh, uh, powwows, and we're not going to name his name or which bank it was for his privacy, but he said he talked to that president said, your model's wrong. Every prediction you've made has been wrong. He goes, why, uh, why don't you just throw away your model? And he, uh, the guy looked at him and said, well, where's your model? W uh, we need a model in order, uh, basically what Jim had said about a model to replace a model. What needs to be done to fix the Fed? Do we need an enlightened president to appoint another Volcker? Is this something that they can change internally? Is it been so corrupted by years of, um, I guess, misguided policy that, that the people in place can't fix themselves? Well, what a profound question. And 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 not easy to answer succinctly. And and actually, I think that that dovetails perfectly with Mr. Grant's sermonette about the gold standard. Because, you know, when you were saying that, it brought to mind Tom Honig, who had a certain argument about how the Fed ought to conduct itself. And and the whole theory here is that when we delink ourselves from the gold standard, or, or you know, collateralized currency, or, or currency that's anchored on gold, we're kind of replacing the stringent discipline of the gold standard with the discipline 
of a policy committee. You know, the the the, the discipline that the FOMC will show. So you get more latitude and freedom to expand the money supply when it needs to be expanded. But the flip side of that coin, if you will, is that as that the leadership will show some discipline or critically this word restraint. And and restraint is not a, a sexy political slogan in, in any way. And it's a hard thing to sell. It's it's much easier to sell, you know, so-called like courageous experimentation, like these wild experiments in money printing. What Honig was arguing was a policy of unheroic restraint in, in 2010 and, and onward, where you might have tried to slowly, gradually raise interest rates to the lofty level of 1%, perhaps, and, and give the economy time to respond without flushing money into the Wall Street system through quantitative easing. And and so, you know, to your question, what needs to be done to the Fed? I mean, what what are the concrete solutions or what could you offer now? And, and and one thing I want to say to that is is you know quite unfortunately we are now in a really tight spot and, and I know you're totally familiar with the contours of the tight spot we're in which is that the Fed has been stoking and stoking the financial system through easy money I mean I reported on all these contentious internal debates about doing quantitative easing in 2010 2012 we're talking 600 billion dollars in 2010, the Fed is permanently pumping $120 billion into the market ever since COVID. So it's become a permanent feature of the Fed. And you can't disengage from that kind of program. You can't wind it down and you can't move into the next phase without a wrenching adjustment. It seems almost inconceivable that you can. So that's a long way of saying, <laughs> unfortunately, I think there are large bills to be paid if we're going to have a, a regime, a change of monetary policy regime at the Fed. That That's one thing. The, these years of, of doing this have sort of raised the price of, of changing direction. And, and then in terms of what's to be done, you know, replacing a, a Powell figure with a Volcker type figure, I, I got to tell you, just as a reporter, I... I I, I, I'm at a lack of words when it comes to like specific policy prescriptions. I, I thought it was somewhat dispiriting that there was this supposed, you know, heated debate between Lael Brainerd or Jay Powell as to who would be chairperson of the Fed, when on core monetary policy issues, there was not daylight at all difference between the two yeah, of them. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know where we go, um, to, to be honest. The, the thing I am trying to do is lay out clearly for for a layman audience, frankly, what's been going on the last 10 years, how we got where we are today, and what the dynamics look like of where we are today. Well, you know, you say you're right for the layman, and indeed, um, you write in, in very clear and very engaging English. And to the layman, it is quite clear what you mean to say and do say. But I also want to add, Chris, that uh, uh, that for those of us who spend most of our adult lives uh, examining these matters, the uh, level of sophistication is just quite impressive. And uh, I, th I found no technical problems at all. Uh, not, not, not the final word on that, but I, as somebody who does it full time, I want to tell you that, uh, that the details are all just as they ought to have been. So bravo again. Um, concerning Tom Honig, I want to wind this up uh, with a quotation from, uh, of all people, from uh, Edmund Burke. 
And this concerns uh, Tom Honig's marginalization and the difficulties that he bore in speaking his mind and discharging his duty, as you quote him as saying in your book, Chris. And this, uh, the quotation from Edmund Burke I'm about to read, comes during a debate where he's uh, seconding the, uh, a bill that uh, his friend Charles Fox has proposed to uh, regulate the East India Company, then the biggest corporation, I think, in the world. And uh, his friend Fox was being attacked mercilessly for this piece of legislation. And here is what Edmund Burke has to say about his friend Charles J. Fox and and his uh, persecution. Quote, this is the road that all true heroes have trod before him. He is traduced and abused for his supposed motives. He will remember that obloquy is a necessary ingredient in the composition of all true glory. He will remember that it was not only in the Roman customs, but it is in the nature and constitution of things that calumny and abuse are essential parts of triumph. Amazing. That's Tom Honig, and, uh, and this is Chris Leonard and his quite wonderful book. Um, oh, uh, this is, uh, you've done the Lord's work, Christopher. Now, now, what's next? Now that you've got these guys in the rope, I hope you don't stop throwing punches. Never mind the referee. Well, thank you for that. And, and I do want to say I really appreciate closing on that note because, you know, when I started this book, I didn't know Tom Honick from A Perfect Stranger. And through the reporting and the facts, I, I really came to actually hold quite a deep respect for this guy who made a principled stand and, and stuck with it and wasn't rewarded for it. And, and that's a big reason. That's when I really realized this needs to be a book. I, I, that, that's a story I want people to read and, and to pass on. So thank you so much for ending on that note. And boy, I'll tell you what, what's next? Um, as a business reporter, there's five weeks of work to be done every day. We're on the job. There's just so much to cover right now. And, and I think that the next two to five years are, are just going to be a uh, busy, busy time and fascinating work in, in terms of what's happening in our economy, in our country. So, um, you know, I'll be hard at work reporting. Well, the Fed is God's gift to the financial press. <laughs> and it doesn't stop giving. No, it does not. So, Evan, Happy New Year again. It's great to, it's great to be back in harness. I, um, I love having written. And now we are on the verge of writing again, Evan. It's not something I really would wish on anyone exactly, but uh, here we are. So the next issue of Rants is coming up next week. And I have a feeling, Evan Lorenz, it's going to be pretty fine. I have Evan, the same you feeling. Have, you have to. You have to uh, 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 I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> okay, excellent. Uh, Christopher B. Well, Happy New Year to you. And once again, bravo. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Current Yield. I'm Jim Grant. 